Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello, welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge, standing in for Mary. And today uh, we have Robert Weiss. Hi, Rob. Good afternoon. Good morning. So Rob is a um, social worker and um, substance abuse counselor um, specialist and founding director of the Sexual Recovery Institute in L.A. Um, He's also the director of sexual disorders services at the Ranch Treatment Center in Tennessee. Um, So Rob trained with um, Patrick Carnes, a real pioneer in sexual addictions, and has written a host of books, including Untangling the Web, Sex, Porn, and Fantasy Addiction, and Cybersex Exposed, um, with numerous co-authors, um, and does a lot of training across the world, really, with military, with various organizations and groups, very experienced educator, leader in the field, and we're lucky to have you as a guest. Hi. Well, thanks. Glad to be here. So, Rob, tell us a little bit about um, what you mean when you talk about sex addiction. You know, on this show... We talk a great deal about addictions. We talk about um, people doing too much coke or drinking too much and losing control of their lives. We talk about the biology behind that and how reinforcing the drugs can be and um, make other things pale in comparison. And we talk about um, illness. But this is just a behavior that people do in bed every now and again if if, if their relationship permits it. And, you know, yet there's this idea that there's a sexual addiction. So explain to me how you understand the concept of sexual addiction and go about thinking about these issues. Well, I think a good way to think, first of all, you raise a really good point, Mark, which is, you know, uh, there's drugs and alcohol, and people generally have an idea, I think, in our culture, how you can be addicted to those things now. You know, we didn't always understand that, even back in the 60s and 70s, you know, what used to be an alcoholic was a bum, right? Now we see them as someone with a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, people who have behavioral addictions like eating disorders or gambling disorders or sexual disorders, you know, we still see those people as being, you know, morally or ethically impaired, which often is not the case. Um, but people who are addicted to substances have a, you know, often have cravings. You know, I don't know anybody who's tried to quit smoking, but, you know, you try to quit smoking, you want that cigarette. And so when you have an understanding of that, you understand how you can be addicted to drugs and alcohol. For many people, there's an actual physical withdrawal and tolerance and all those things. But how could you be addicted to a behavior? You know, that's, I think, a lot harder for people to understand. And that's when people start saying things about addiction like, oh, well, you know, Tiger Woods was just looking for an excuse. And he just calls himself a sex addict or went into sex addiction treatment because 
you know, that's easier than saying he just liked to cheat on his wife. Right. But if you understand behavioral addictions, they really, there really is a chemical and neuro, neurobiological chemical element to uh, gambling addiction, to eating disorders, to sexual disorders of this nature that, are just, that is just as addictive as using cocaine or smoking cigarettes. And, you know, it's uh, a funny thing, actually, because in the olden days, it, all addictions used to be just considered this moral um, turpitude and a um, moral issue. And then, you know, people started talking a bit more about the disease process. Um, and then there was a real neurobiological shift with the discovery of reward pathways and um, identification of um, how certain things can be reinforced. But the whole point was that drugs would hijack systems which were designed for natural reinforcers, yeah. like sex and warmth and food. Um, and the drugs and alcohol just can do it better. So now it sounds like there's a bit more of a reconceptualization and behavioral addictions almost have to remind everyone, hold on, the drugs and alcohol were hijacking things which were systems which were supposed to reinforce behaviors in the first place. Well, I, I think a good way of thinking about that, I mean, the best way that I can describe that is that anyone who's worked with a drug addict will, will tell you that when the drug addict, if a drug addict is, is not used in a couple of days and he or she's driving to the dealer's house to buy some drugs, there's going to be a huge element of excitement and fantasy for the drug addict who's going to go finally get high. You know, they're going to be driving there and stopping at the bank and getting money and calling the drug dealer. And, you know, all the way there, their reward systems are going to be playing out. In other words, they're going to be feeling excited. They're going to be looking forward to it. They're going, their heart's going to be pounding. They're going to have adrenaline. You know, they're going to be high long before they put the drugs in their system. I don't think mm -hmm. anyone would disagree with that mm -hmm. because they are aroused emotionally by the excitement of going to go use. And when we have that kind of excitement, part of what happens in our brain, as you said, is our higher powers of reasoning are hijacked. When I am incredibly excited, and I don't mean sexually excited, I mean emotionally excited, about the possibility of going and doing something, and I, my adrenaline is flowing and my dopamine is being released, and I'm really not thinking very clearly. In fact, I kind of have tunnel vision. And so that's how the drug addict, despite his own best or her own best intellectual beliefs that they shouldn't use anymore, will end up using again because they convince themselves and get into this kind of high around the excitement of using, and before they know it, they, quote-unquote, end up using again. And for people who have behavioral addictions, that is the high, is that losing yourself in the excitement and the fantasy and the possibilities while your heart is pounding and your pupils are dilated and your hands are clammy and, you know, you have this anticipatory excitement. And that could be about getting to the casino for a compulsive gambler. It could be about going to see the prostitute for the sex addict. You know, it could be about getting to the grocery store and taking that ice cream home for the person with the eating disorder. Uh, addicts live for the ability to escape, and you don't always need drugs to be able to escape. It's a very interesting perspective, actually. I like that one. Um, in fact, the dopamine release is maximum in the reward centers of the brain as the organism, as the animal or human, is anticipating um, the potential for the reward. Yeah. It's, um, it's bigger during those periods than it is when you actually receive the reward. And it is about seeking and um, driving toward um, the um, potential um, attaining of a reward. Well, it's um, interesting, Mark, that you say that because if, 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 if sex addiction were really about the act of sex, mm 
Mm. Um, most men I know, um, maybe not all, and certainly a, a number of women, you know, they could engage in a sexual act in maybe five or ten minutes with themselves. Mm-hmm. So, and yet, the people that I work with will lose themselves for hours and days uh, looking at porn, uh, calling up prostitutes, uh, engaging in phone chats, um, being in the affair before it actually happens. All of the intense excitement and the arousal, and again, I don't mean sexual arousal, I mean emotional arousal, that comes with the possibilities of what I'm going to go do that's what these addicts are addicted to. That we, we say they're addicted to the, to the hunt, to the pursuit, to the chase, to the potential for their sexual experience. The sex itself, eh, you know, to be honest, most mm-hmm. sex addicts will look back and say, I kind of wish I hadn't been with that person, or I wish I hadn't been in that place, or yes. much as a drug addict will say, you know what, I wish I had, now that I look back, I wish I hadn't gotten high that day. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's often, you know, in drug dreams, um, it's often the anticipation of getting the drug um, and all of the work which goes on, um, which comes back in the dream. And people usually wake up before they ever use. Um, you know, that's not the, that's not the, that might be the cherry on top, but it's not the point. It's not what the main drive is linked to. How much of... Um, a problem is this, by and large. I mean, you know, it, it's a tricky one, really, because it merges so much with uh, normal behavior. So there's, I guess there's two right. questions. How much of a problem is this, and, and when does normal become abnormal? Well, the research that we have tells us that between 5 to 8% of the general population has a problem with compulsive or addictive sexuality. So uh, and the numbers are higher for drugs and alcohol. They're more like 8 to 12%. Um, and I'll be very honest with you, we don't really have the resources to do a lot of research on this because not everybody wants to talk about their sex lives. Yeah. And, um, and also because, you know, people aren't necessarily getting drunk driving arrests or, you know, losing all their money in the casino. So you, there isn't the same motivation out there to get the research that's needed for what would be considered a, a voluntary sexual act. Mm-hmm. But... Um, what I can, t- can tell you is the difference between uh, a sex addict and a non-sex addict is that, you know, we all enjoy recreational sexual b- behavior. You know, we enjoy sex for fun, uh, and we enjoy sex as a part of intimacy, and we enjoy sex as a part of procreation. But the sexual act for a sex addict isn't really about any of those things. It's not about fun. It's not really about recreation, and it's not about having kids. You know, what, what it is for the sex addict is about escape. Mm-hmm. So people who are sexually addicted, much like the compulsive gambler or the compulsive overeater, they have difficulty dealing with the reality that they live in. You know, they, can't hand, they don't handle emotional stress well. They often have difficulty being alone. Uh, they don't travel well. They'll often act out when they travel. There are different kinds of stressors that healthy people might, you know, uh, depend on calling a friend or relaxing a little bit to get over. The people that I work with, uh, sex addicts, look for intensity to get over. So if I'm anxious or about finances or having a fight with my spouse, um, I will look for intensity, emotionally arousing, sexual and romantic situations to escape into. And then I don't have to deal with anything except that exciting thing that I'm looking forward to. Right. You can do that with pornography. You can do that with affairs. You can do that with uh, strip clubs and prostitutes. Um, uh, some of the sex addicts I work with don't actually have sex with other people. They're just looking at porn and masturbating. So, mm. um, uh, But the goal for the sex addict is the same as the goal for the drug addict. It's to disappear into the behavior for as long as I can and feel really good and positive and excited for as long as I can without having to deal with the realities of life. 
it's a drug. Yeah, it's a drug. So it's a very, very different type of experience than having some sexual intimacy with someone that you're um, caring about. It's, it's not, it's, this is a different emotional intensity of rawness um, that um, distances you in some ways from that intimacy and from the world around you. Uh, certainly, I think one of the, the uh, um, catchphrases in sex addiction is that sex addicts seek intensity rather than intimacy. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and I'm not talking about recreational sex where you have a, you know, a, a young adolescent or a young adult who's experimenting but, uh, and getting to know, you know themselves through dating and intimacy and sexuality, um, although there certainly are sex addicts of that age too. In fact, you know what, let me give you an example of that. I, I was... I was running a group of men, and there were two, two 19-year-olds in the group, and you'd, males. And you'd think, well, 19, you know, that kind of like every 19-year-old is a sex addict, aren't they? You know, I mean, isn't that, you know, it doesn't 18, 19, 20 define, you know, sexual exploration and your hormones are... But I was in this group with these couple of addict males, and one of the guys was saying, I think I'm a sex addict, and he's 19. And I thought, well, you know, how would you know? And he said, well, I have a girlfriend, but I cheat on her all the time. I lie to her about my sexual behavior. I have some other women that I see. I lie to them, too. I tell them I care about them when I don't. I use them for sex. I have multiple relationships. I'm also seeing prostitutes. Yeah. The other 19-year-old said, wow, I just look at porn once in a while and masturbate and have a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was really clear at an early age that this guy's relationship to sex was... Um, leaving him disregarding other people's feelings. Um, it was more important to him to get to the sex than it was to really have any kind of real intimacy or closeness. Um, yeah. And when he had real intimacy and closeness, he would run away with, from it as fast as he could with other sexual experiences. Um, so that might give you a little example between someone who's healthy and someone who isn't. Yeah, it certainly does. Well, let's come back after a short break and continue this, Rob. Thanks. Pleasure. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind, embrace positively, release the tension, step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center of recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Um, this is Mark Green sitting in for Mary. Um, and we've got Rob talk to us a bit more about um, sex addiction. So just before the break, we were talking about some of the um, sexual anticipatory um, excitement that can come as a prelude to um, which provides such an escape for people with a sex addiction um, and um, something of the prevalence of sex addiction in the community. You know, I was wondering, I, mean, I, I treat a lot of people with um, significant addictions and major mental illness, um, and so many of them have um, problems with intimacy and use pornography and prostitutes um, and compulsive masturbation, um, as, but it's so interwoven with their drug use. Um, and I, I just wondered how much there, of that comorbidity there is and um, for you to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, I, I, we run an inpatient center called The Ranch, and um, when I'm working at The Ranch, I'm more often seeing people who have what you call comorbidity or <coughs> um, issues where they both use drugs and have a compulsive sexual problem. Mm. And we see this a lot with stimulants, um, cocaine and um, crystal meth in particular, where people will... Um, especially now that you have Viagra and those Cialis and those nice drugs yeah. can keep you erect for days and hours, um, we will have men who will lose themselves for, you know, they'll hole up in a hotel room with prostitutes and a whole bunch of cocaine or they'll be doing crystal meth in a bathhouse or whatever that is, and they end up fusing, uh, I think that's a good word for it, is fusing their drug use and their sexual behavior. Yeah. And sometimes you really don't know, you know, does this person, is this person a drug addict who has acted out a lot sexually because of the drugs? Or is this somebody who really had a sexual and romantic and intimacy problem um, and they just found their way to the drugs? Or are they really addicted to both? You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you really don't know that until the person gets sober. And they really have to stop using. Um, we can't figure anything out about a behavioral addiction until somebody is, is uh, clean. I think that's it's very true. I mean, down the line, when people are uh, have stopped using their drug or alcohol, it's often the pull to that escapism of raw sex or raw um, um, sexual excitement. Yeah, it doesn't um, have to be sex, Mark. It could just be you know. There's this whole idea of thirteenth stepping in the twelve step rooms, and mm-hmm. you know the idea that 
or people in early drug and alcohol recovery, you know, back in the day, back in the old days, maybe in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, before we started talking about multiple addictions, when you were working with a drug addict or an alcoholic, you just said, look, just get sober, just stop drinking and using it, and everything else will be okay. Right. And I think that we've become more sophisticated now, uh, and, and even the facilities that were just treating drugs and alcohol and, and really promoted that way of thinking are saying, you know what, this may be more to it than that. Maybe there are behaviors that lead to relapse for drugs and alcohol for some people that we need to look at. Um, maybe just staying sober isn't going to be uh, enough. And I'll give you an example. Um, there are people who, that I work with who, you, who use stimulants, uh, who abuse stimulants or are addicted to stimulants, and they can't stay sober uh, even though they go to lots of meetings and they get very involved in recovery and they have a sponsor and they have therapy. And, but where they go looking for sex or the people that they look turn to for sex uh, are often drug-using or drug-seeking. And so, you know, you take a single guy who ends up seeing prostitutes or married or, uh, you know, a gay guy who ends up in a, in a bathhouse where there are people are using crystal, he's going to end up using again because of his sexual behavior. So mm-hmm. unless you look at both, you're really not going to be able to help that person uh, remain sober on drugs and alcohol. Um, what's interesting to me about this, <clears throat> and I think it might interest you too, Mark, is that um, it's different for men and women. Uh, men are much more able, in general, to get sober on drugs and alcohol and will look a year or two later at, oh, wow, you know, I'm doing this other behavior that isn't so great. In other words, or they'll get found out for their sexual behavior. But women, uh, often, about 50% of the women we treat actually find themselves unable to get sober on drugs and alcohol despite all of their best efforts because of their relationship with, drug, with uh, romance and sex. That it's either something about a woman's sexual history or the people that she's being sexual with or her feelings about being alone and not being in a relationship, that she will relapse over drugs and alcohol much more frequently than a man uh, if the sexual and uh, relationship issues aren't looked at as well. That's so interesting. So you mentioned a few possibilities in there, you know, the sexual history, um, and I was wondering about the role of um, sexual trauma. Um, but uh, do you have some theories on why that is? Well, women are, are inherently more relational. Uh, we tend to be more independent. Males are just built that way. And so uh, a woman's sense of self is often defined not just you know, within herself, but also in, about, in relationship to those around her, kids, family, community, friends. And uh, if she is having an an, uh, a great deal of instability relationship-wise or relationally, um, it's going to be hard for her to stay sober because her sense of self is disrupted. Uh, men tend to act uh, more, uh, to, to be able to be, um, function better more independently in a lot of ways, and so we will distance ourselves relationships, and we can get sober on drugs and alcohol and then just have sex as a sort of uh, side note, you know. Um, but also, you're right, uh, and, and this is absolutely true, that um, you asked about where this comes from, and about 25% of the men have had some kind of overt sexual trauma, maybe 20% somewhere in there. Yeah. But, but far beyond that, the women who sexually act out are, are, are off the charts. It's more like 60 to 70% of the women who come into treatment for sex addiction mm-hmm. have been sexually abused or violated in some way. Right. So the men come to their addiction with sex in a, from a different place more often than the women. Um, the women have more overt abuse. The men tend to have more what we would call covert or hidden abuse. So as they enter into, so as the women enter more into um, sexual relationships or people who have um, had some sexual trauma, men or women, as they enter into a relationship, 
those um, core anxieties um, might become very triggering and find that they can lose themselves um, and relapse to the drugs and alcohol um, more quickly, perhaps. Yeah, I, I absolutely. One of the, this is one of the reasons that I'm doing some work at Promises also here in Malibu is because, mm-hmm. you know, they're finding that they're not getting always the sobriety rates that they want to get from people who are being discharged because of their sexual and romantic issues um, or because of the, the people they used with, they were also having sex with, or, you know, those kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. um, again, I think more and more, as we're becoming more sophisticated in the addiction fields, we're looking not just at the using, but this person's whole life and how are they living it. And how are they being intimate? You know, one of the things that always, you know, I'm a sex addiction specialist. So, you know, one of the things that always bugged me is that you would go into a treatment center, and those of you who are familiar with treatment centers or any kind of hospital, you would get a nutritional evaluation, you get a a physical, you you know, you get evaluated for uh, exercise, and but nobody sits down with you and says, now let's sit down and talk about your sexual life. Yeah. Um, and, right. and yet it is, for many of us, you know, as important as eating and breathing and, and you know, as a part of our physical lives. Mm. Um, this is an area that my hope is to bring less stigma and more discussion. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is um, stigma. There's some embarrassment about talking about masturbation or um, sex or um, and then a whole awkwardness about it, even in... Um, the addiction treatment realm. Oh, try going to an AA meeting and raising your hand and saying, I have a sex problem. You would find out very quickly that that's not the place to talk about that. But then if you have the sex problem, where do you talk about it? Because you've been told, you know, this is the place where you get all of your, where you're going to heal. That's interesting. And that's really shifted over, you know, that's shifted for other drugs and then a little bit for um, psychiatric issues. But it sounds like for sex addiction, that's still um, not um, accepting and folded into your typical 12-step meeting? Well, sexual issues are the ones that we have the most shame about mm. and we're also the least likely to talk about. And a lot of people, especially recovering addicts, have sexual secrets and things that they have shame about that perhaps they did when they were using. And, you know, for most people, you can kind of put that in an inventory and it goes away and that's the end of it. But what about the people who continue to do it or continue to be haunted by it? They might need a special kind of attention, and that's, you know, that's what we're for. Yeah. So um, I would imagine there's many different paths to developing um, some sexual addictions. It might just start mm-hmm. as a uh, gentle escape, um, like some, as, as are many paths for developing alcoholism or other addictions. Um, you know, it might just start as a gentle escape, or it might be um, tied in with drug use and um, take on its own form. Um, do you find that there are many different ways to developing a sexual addiction or different age groups and, or are there typical patterns? Well, you know, it's interesting, Mark, because we, we always want to be able to say, now that's the person who's going to be a sex addict, you know, or that's the person who's going to have an alcohol problem. Or, and, you know, what you know if you work in the field is that every individual is different, unfortunately, um, but there are patterns. So, you know, we have some men and women who have uh, some obsessiveness or some obsessive compulsiveness in their background, um, but not necessarily enough for diagnosis, mental health. We have some people who have um, uh, attention deficit or, or ADD kinds of problems, and they, they tend to be more impulsive around their sexual choices. But most people come into treatment just as sex addicts. I mean, that is the primary issue about three-quarters of our clients. That you know, They may have some underlying depression or anxiety, but that is the primary issue, and people come to it for various reasons. Um, most of the men who come into treatment have had 
what I would call parentified childhoods, where they ended up, for whatever reasons, really being more the caretaker of a parent than the parent being the caretaker of them. So yeah. most of the men that I work with know a lot about how to be charming, how to be seductive, how to make other people feel wanted and desired and important because that was a survival skill growing up. But they don't necessarily know how to make themselves feel joy and happiness, and they don't know recreation, and they don't know play because they didn't have the freedom to learn that growing up. So some people come to it through childhood neglect and trauma. But I'll give you an example of how that doesn't happen. I've done some work with the military in recent years. I've done a number of trainings for them. And, you know, if you take a young man who's 19 years old or 20 years old or 21 years old and you expose him to intense war violence uh, um, experiences that are beyond his ability to tolerate and are extremely, obviously, intense and stressful. Mm. And then, you know, two or three years later you send him home um, and he gets online and starts looking at porn or starts playing video games. He's going to realize, wow, I can recapture some of that intensity that I was used to living under and that I kind of escaped into for so long, you know, right here on the computer. So one of the things we're seeing with some vets is that they are using Internet gaming and Internet sexual behavior as a form, in a very addictive way, as a form of escape from uh, PTSD and stress related to war. Now, that isn't somebody who necessarily had a difficult childhood. You know, so this is another example of how someone could come to an addiction uh, how there are many ways to come to addiction. Um, it isn't just biological. It isn't just something that happened in childhood. It's different for different people. So, and I, I think another one must be when he when he said the nineteen year old um, who's been um, go, who goes off to war. You know, it's a real disruption of a developmental curve of where you sort of no, learn about sexual intimacy and learn about how to. Um, become close with someone and have a sexual relationship, which isn't as it is in the pictures, um, and certainly not what is represented on pornography sites. Mm. Um, and, um, and I suppose when you're in an all-male unit and you're watching porn, you're getting a very, very different perspective on that whole topic than you would if you were practicing and learning uh, in a secure environment at home. Well, I'd like to add to that very, very quickly. You know, what does someone who's been on uh, on a military patrol for six months do when they get a week off and they're in uh, in a foreign city? Mm-hmm. You know, they right. often end up in a house of prostitution. They often are encouraged to go blow off steam with some women. Yeah. So they learn that you know recreation. You know, they're 19. They're learning the recreation and the. And getting out of the intensity I've been living at, uh, living in, has to do with sex. You know, and that's how I blow off steam. So it also can be learned in that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, we better take a short break. Thanks, Rob. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is Mark Green, who co-hosts this show from time to time um, with Robert Weiss. Um, founding director of the Sexual Recovery Institute in L.A. and also director of Sexual Disorders Services at the Ranch um, in Tennessee. So, Rob, you know, in the break, we're continuing our talk. And, um, you know, so we, you said, rightly so, we really need to um, talk a little bit about the role of the Internet in all of this because I heard some amazing statistic um, about what proportion of the internet is dedicated to pornography. Do you know that figure? Uh, whatever figure it is, I'd probably double it, but feel free. <laughs> I mean, I heard, I, I, you know, it was a few years ago, but I heard something like 80% of the, the information flow over the internet is dedicated to pornography. I don't know if that's outlandishly um, over the top, but maybe you'd have some better sense. Well, I, I guess what I would say about it is that it's not my job, um, and, I, and excuse me for uh, saying it in this way, but it's not my job to um, sort of take stock of, um, of sociological change or how that might affect us as a culture. Or So the fact that there is a lot of porn on, or on the Internet or how much porn is on the Internet is, is not as important to me as, as, as how it affects the, the people that I treat. So mm-hmm. let me mm-hmm. be more clear. Um, okay. There was a time when everyone said, oh, my God, alcohol is the demon, and it... It destroys people's lives, and it causes people to be uh, lack integrity and lie and ruin and hit their wives, and you know. And then we started prohibition, and I think what we learned is that you know what, alcohol isn't destructive for everyone. Yeah. Uh, some people, you know, most people don't really have a problem with it. It's destructive for some people, and so rather than directing our efforts at eradicating alcohol, uh, we redirected our efforts as a culture at, at helping the people who had a problem with it. And warning those who don't, or warning everybody that, you know, there is a problem here and there is a potential for a problem and these are the signs. And so in a very similar way, you know, um, um, uh, sorry, I lost my thread here. 
Um, sexual behavior, uh, you know, not everybody's going to have a problem with porn. And yeah. so the fact that there's a lot more porn available for most people might be an enjoyable or interesting distraction or, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe an occasional, uh, I don't know, uh, way to uh, soothe or calm or distract themselves. Mm-hmm. But not everybody's going to become a sex addict. Um, so I, I, I get, I'm wary of railing against, and I'm not saying you're encouraging that, but the, you know, how much pornography is out there and look how our cultural values have changed. And, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think humans are humans and some people are more vulnerable than others. Got it. So it's a great point. The is, problem is, is access. That's really the problem. You know, if you put cocaine in the medicine cabinet and said everyone in America can have as much cocaine as they want, uh, whenever they want, not everyone would become a cocaine addict, but you'd have a lot more cocaine addicts. Mm-hmm. And the fact, you know, if you think about what it took for me to get pornography, if I was going to look for it in 1988, you know, I had to get dressed, I had to put my clothes on, I had to leave my house, I had to get in my car, I had to go to that icky place under the bridge, you know, get my video, maybe mm-hmm. rent it, and, and then have to go home and maybe go back and return it. Right. And so if you think about that versus what does it take to get pornography today, which is I pick up my phone or I turn on my computer, um, the, the sheer immediacy of access to intensely pleasurable experience means that there are going to be more people who are who, more vulnerable people who are going to impulsively end up um, using it in a way that's destructive to them. So I don't know if this is the case in sex addiction, but you know, certainly age of initiation with um, drug use um, is very tightly correlated with um, transition to um, dependence later. Yeah. Um, and if you can keep adolescents away from trying drugs and alcohol uh, for a while, you're doing them a great favor. Um, I don't know if that's it, but probably for, because of availability, accessibility, a lot younger kids are also able to access and, and play and discover uh, pornography, which probably also increases the transition. Well, let me say this about that, because I think it's useful. We do have some studies on how pornography affects, how the use of pornography affects or has affected uh, children. We don't have it from the child's perspective, obviously, because we're not uh, showing pornography to children, but we have it from the perspective of adults who were exposed to pornography at Mm -hmm. different ages when they were younger and what they report back about those experiences now that they're adults. And uh, what we know about pornography is that the younger you're exposed to it, uh, the younger you're exposed to any kind of really explicit imagery or sexual experience, the more likely it is that you're going to have adult problems with either fetishes and, and, or, and or compulsive sexuality. So I don't worry so much about the 15-year-old boy who finds some porn online, and that's his you know, route to masturbation. Yeah. Um, I do worry if he shows his 8-year-old brother mm-hmm. that pornography, because the 15-year-old is much more uh, 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 capable of managing the intensity of that experience and integrating it in, and, and turning it into... Uh, some idea for how he might, you know, want to go out and date or meet or be sexual with adults or other kids when he's, you know, becoming sexual. But the yeah. eight-year-old has no idea what to do with it. So, yeah. you know, it is problematic if you're exposed to it at a very early age. And, and the younger you are, the, the more problematic it is. But there's not, um, cl- there's not an indication that exposing um, the adolescent, the vulnerable adolescent to Internet pornography is going to... Um, turn them inevitably into a sex addict. That's a kind of black and white um, thinking that you're, you're trying to be much more thoughtful about. Well, just, I'm just saying that, you know, when I was growing up, 
they told us that sex drugs, sex drugs and rock and roll was going to ruin my generation, and mm-hmm. that noisy music, I was going to go deaf, and TV was going to make my mind into mush, and you know, because these were not experiences my parents had. Yeah, I had older parents. So what I'm wary of is the generation that has 15-year-olds and 12-year-olds now in love and caring for their kids saying, oh, my God, all that pornography and the Internet and all the time they're spending with these computers and it's going to ruin their brains, it's going to ruin their lives. You know, I don't think that's true. Yeah. Uh, we are evolving a new race, a new, a new part of our uh, culture. You know, I, I didn't grow up, you know, with a PS2 or, or, or an iPad. I, I didn't spend hours in that kind of brain stimulation related to a machine that kids do today. So my brain evolved very differently than the yeah. children who are growing up today. They're going to be very different as a race in some ways than we but are. But what I do hear um, from people who um, you know, really lose themselves for hours or days um, compulsively masturbating, doing coke, is that it's so easy to um, click through the Internet and find yourself in some really um, troubling, disturbing places, which when it would probably not be sexually arousing. But because you're so aroused, you click on them, and it's, um, those associations really get paired. So people can feel quite ashamed and shocked by the kind of things that they are experiencing as turn-ons. Um, once uh, after they've meandered through the internet a while. Well, certainly there are people that um, I think that it's a warning sign, and this is a good way of thinking about it. If you if you find yourself saying to yourself around sexual behavior or around around uh, pornography, saying, "Now I'm doing this, but I'm never going to do that," mm. um, I'd worry about that because uh, half the time the people I work with ended up in places that they didn't expect, and you know, part of it is, as you said. Um, there are uh, bizarre and unusual and illegal sexual behaviors that can be viewed online that, you know, you can get in a click and a half. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, they weren't accessible at all, except through, you know, the most illegal of me. I mean, you were sending out of the country for things or you were, you know, it was very difficult to be able to view those things. And that in itself kind of meant that it wasn't a good thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Listen, we better get into treatment a bit, um, and um, not just for the um, sex addict, him or herself, but also for the partner. Um, why don't we come back after a short break and see if we can get into that? Great. Okay. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. 
Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. All right, welcome back to our last segment of One Hour at a Time. We're talking with... Robert Weiss, uh, you know, Robert, Rob, we, we've um, had a good conversation. How could people get in touch with you or get more information uh, from, about you um, if, should they want it? Well, perhaps not just about me, but about the work that we do. Um, our website is sexualrecovery.com. So that's one word, sexualrecovery.com or www.sexualrecovery.com. And we have um, not just information about our programming, but a lot of books, a lot of articles, a lot of questions and answers. There are self-tests on there that people can say, you know, maybe I have a problem, let me take the test and see. Um, we make a lot of referrals to therapists all over the country because we're here in California. So, um, you know, it's a good place to check out uh, if you want information. Excellent. Thanks. Okay, so what kind of um, treatment is available? What, what is treatment and... Let's hear a bit about that. Well, you know, treatment for sex addiction really isn't that different in a lot of ways than drugs and alcohol um, mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, we have to stop the behavior. We have to stop the person from engaging in the sexual behavior, whatever that is, or the pattern of behavior that's <clears throat> destroying the things that are important to them. So they have to stop doing whatever is ruining their marriage or getting them arrested or, you know, getting them into uh, or, or leaving them unable to date or whatever their personal issues are. Um, and then we have to teach them how to manage stress and how to deal with the anxieties and stressors of relationships in life, you know, because the guys I work with, you know, they have a hard day, they go see a prostitute. It's not, it's not like the hard days are going to be over. Yeah. So how do they handle a hard day? How do they know the signs of a hard day? How do they, how do they take care of themselves in a healthier way and, and, uh, and really fill themselves up emotionally without escaping into intensity? And all of that is, is taught and learned uh, in the treatment process. Mm-hmm. So, so it's um, typical um, issues around acceptance, um, managing the different affects and emotions that you experience, and rediscovering some intimacy without needing to lose yourself um, in um, a distraction. Well, the truth is, is that you know, calling up a friend when you're having a difficult day, or calling a sponsor, or going to a meeting and, and going to fellowship after, um, they will not produce the same immediate exciting distraction that comforts you that, you know, perhaps uh, 
going online for porn will produce. Mm-hmm. But you will feel better, and you will be able to calm down, and you will, uh, you know, be able to find ways to resolve what you're feeling. Um, we're just, we have to teach people how to begin to reach out and fill themselves up with human experiences that aren't sexual or romantic, um, because they have found this way to get immediate, an immediate fix, if you will, mm-hmm. at least for the short term, although it produces much more long-term harm. Um, so uh, in the treatment centers, you know, and, and I must say also we're dealing with denial a lot because, you know, uh, a man will come into treatment, for example, and say, well, you know, I, yeah, I see hookers three days a week, but, you know, uh, it's not like looking at all at porn is a problem for me. Or, you know, I've had some affairs, but, you know, that doesn't mean I should stop going to strip clubs. Or, you know, just like the drug addict or alcoholic, they have lots of ways of parsing it all out into ways that, you know, uh, are comfortable. And, and we lay their whole sexual histories on the table and say, let's look at all of it and see what really works for you and what doesn't. Right. So you think it's quite important for people to see that they have a very significant problem um, before they can obviously make some um, therapeutic plan to address that. And it's essential because without it, other realms of their um, intimacy and interpersonal connection and all realms of their um, recovery just is going to be um, 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 unable to proceed. Well, I, I, sex addiction, you know, uh, one of the things I hear about sex addiction a lot from people who are not sex addicts or don't understand it is that it sounds like fun. You know, like that's an addiction I'd like to have. Mm. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys will say, hey, you get, all, get laid all, all you want and, you know, you can have all the sex you want. It's really, you know. And I just think like, well, you know, drinking is fun, but not if you're an alcoholic. Yes. You know, drinking is recreational and relaxing, but if you're an alcoholic, it destroys your life and you drive into trees and hit people. So, mm. you know, and blackout and all of that. So, you know, it's the same with sex addiction. Um, um, it's uh, recreational sex and intimate sex is fun, but sex addiction is not so fun. So um, we have to help, peop- help people how to find joy in their lives without uh, running to anonymous sexual experiences. Um, we should say something a little bit about, uh, spouse, about spouses. Yes, one we thing. should. Um, you know, this is a very, almost every man who comes into treatment, about 80% of them come in because their wife or girlfriend or boyfriend, their primary partner said, I'm not going to put up with your sexual behavior anymore. I found something on the computer, and then you said it was nothing, and I believed you, and then I found more. Mm-hmm. Uh, our partners tend to do what we call detective work. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they become suspicious, and it's horrible for them because here's the person that they most want to trust, they most want to believe in, that they think it really has their back, mm-hmm. and they find out that this is actually the person who's let the wolf in the door. It's not unusual for me to work with a man who's been seeing prostitutes and has, you know, given a sexually transmitted disease to his wife. Yes. Um, you know, because he didn't think that he could get a disease from oral sex, or he didn't think that he thought, you know, well, it, it won't happen to me. She seemed, she seemed clean enough, or whatever that mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. And then he doesn't want to tell his wife, of course, because he doesn't want to get caught, and she ends up with chlamydia or, you know, having a, having a problem. That's a nightmare, you know, for the spouse. Absolutely terrible injury so so it must be enormously difficult for um a partner who has experienced such a injury um such a painful loss of trust in their partner um to be able to listen and um begin to move past and forgive and allow some um compassion and empathy for um for their partner well it's really great mark you said it because actually we don't recommend forgiveness empathy or for, or, or any of those things for quite a while. We believe that the spouses have every right to be angry, yeah. every right to feel hurt, 
And just because he has a problem, it doesn't mean that it's your job to make him feel better or your job to understand it. You know, there are therapists to understand it, there are sponsors to understand it, there are other people in recovery to understand it, there are a lot of people who can support him, but for a spouse or her, but for a spouse, your job is to be angry at them as long as you need to be. Um, And spouses are very, very angry and they're very, very hurt, and the biggest source of that is the uh, breaking of trust. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it isn't the sexual betrayal that's the hard part, really. Uh, I mean, spouses will say, I wish you hadn't done that, that really hurt me. But it's more the fact that I laid next to you night after night for 10 years, and, and you've had this whole double life that I knew nothing about. Mm. And if that's the case, then I don't know who you are. And I don't know who we are together, and, you know, what about our family and our kids? And so it's the breaking of trust and the betrayal of that trust that is the hardest part for the spouses. Yeah. Yeah. And so... so Families must come in in enormous conflict, and you can't rush to, um, well, see it from his point of view. You have to de-escalate only through validating um, the anger and, and pain um, so that the, the person with the addiction really has to understand the um, disruption that their behavior has caused. Which, which they don't. I mean, if, an, if a sex addict really understood the disruption and pain, really on an emotional level, under, had empathy for how that was affecting their spouse, they wouldn't be able to do it. You know, they have a lot of denial around how they behave. You know, a lot of guys and, and women that I work with will say, well, as long as my spouse doesn't know about it, it doesn't really hurt them, Yeah, which isn't true, but um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But um, one of the things that I have to tell the people in recovery is you have to be patient with your partner. They have a right to be angry and hurt, and that anger and hurt is not going to end because you've been going to meetings for three months or, you know, you've got a chip. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll have a guy say, well, you know, hey, honey, you know, he'll come home after three months. I got three months sober sexually, and I've been going to meetings, and I got a sponsor, and here's my chip. And she says, you know, well, great, so you've been three months sober from sex, but, you know, you've been betraying me for 12 years, so why am I supposed to cheer for you? And she is absolutely right. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't get to be cheered for. I mean, that's my job. That's the sponsor's job. That's, you know, and he has to be in the doghouse for a while. You know, his job is to understand how much hurt and pain and betrayal he's really caused and to allow that spouse to be angry and hurt and be all over the map with it um, and not try to fix it or change it or excuse it or explain how hard they've been working and can't they just be forgiven. Forgiveness is a year to 18 months away uh, for most couples. Well, I wish we had another few hours to talk about this and um, I'll I'll personally um, be getting out some of your books and reading them. I, I think You've been a great guest. You've got a lot of knowledge to share. Um, Encourage people to look at sexualrecovery.com. Robert Weiss, thank you. It's a pleasure. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.